Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by Dr. Malcolm Steiger, who is a consultant neurologist with extensive experience uh, of movement disorders. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Good, thank you, John. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, to a topic particularly have an interest in and practice that is Parkinson's disease. Great. Well, I was hoping today to uh, to really ask you some questions uh, about commonly encountered scenarios in the movement disorder clinic. I guess in particular the the Parkinson's disease clinic um, that you might come across. And with each case, um, if you're able to just let us know how you would approach these uh, these sorts of problems in everyday clinical practice. Okay, well, well, thank you. As you know, John, um, Parkinson's disease is probably the most rapidly growing neurodegenerative condition uh, in the Western world. And therefore, as a neurologist like you, uh, we're increasingly seeing more patients with Parkinson's disease. Um, and as the treatments improve over the years, the patient's life expectancy has never been better. And I think, therefore, from um, when I was a junior, I think we can offer better quality of care. Mm-hmm. And also, we also embrace the fact that Parkinson's disease is more than a physical condition. Mm-hmm. And we've learned that by looking at uh, the presentation of symptoms prior to the uh, motor um, cl- uh, clinical signs. For example, a constipation, rapid eye movement, sleep disorder, um, som- hypersomnolence, and other what's called non-motor features of the disease, which can... Um, um, be a feature of the uh, presenting illness. Um, mm. Managing those is also really important as well as the motor con- uh, complications of the condition. I think um, a generation ago, we th- I think we were f- far too uh, concentrated on the motor symptoms and really weren't asking about the other impacts of Parkinson's disease, maybe because we were not aware mm. or maybe we weren't listening. Well, except, well hopefully we'll, we'll cover some of those in uh, through these case discussions. So the first case I'd like to discuss is a patient who's 67 years old. She's a female. She's got a background history of hypertension, but is otherwise well, and has been referred by the GP with suspected Parkinson's disease. So she reports she first noted pain in her left shoulder around 18 months ago. She went to a physio, and despite having fairly extent, uh, intensive physiotherapy, the pain started to the pain persisted, and she also started to notice a tremor affecting the left arm. Alongside this, she's noticed her walking has slowed down and her handwriting has become a lot smaller. Examination demonstrates a resting tremor affecting the left hand with evidence of rigidity. She walks with reduced arm swing, particularly on the left, and you note bradykinesia when testing finger tapping and also micrographia. The remainder examination is otherwise normal and you make a clinical diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. So um, just before we go into how you might manage this, um, anything in that, about that case description that sort of rings, rings true from what you've seen in clinic? Well, that's a classical description. I mean, you could have written that 20 or 30 years ago because as I earlier um, mentioned, there is little in the way of non-motor symptoms reported here. So we should be inquiring about those things. Okay. And you'll, you'll notice those motor symptoms when you call for your patient into clinic. And the penny should drop fairly quickly mm-hmm. um, that the patient has a left-sided tremor. Maybe they have reduced arm swing, as evident by the difficulty the patient has in their shoulder. Mm-hmm. You may notice that their walking is slowed, maybe compared to the spouse or carer or friend or, or family member who walks with them. You may note the difficulty the patient has is getting through the door or sitting down. Um, you may notice that the, 
that uh, more than the usual sort of blank face of the uh, anxious patient coming to clinic, that the face lacks expression and they're, they're not blinking. So you can pick up on these visual cues mm -hmm. within the first few minutes of the uh, of the patient entering the room. Mm. Um, and, and it's therefore important to keep your eyes open and turn your eyes away from the computer screen. Yeah. Okay. And would you consider starting treatment on a patient uh, perhaps in this first consult or um, how would you approach that? So let's say, let's go through, if we go, if I digress slightly and go through the presenting features. So again, all of this is very much consistent with idiopathic Parkinson's disease. Um, the uh, pain in her shoulder may well relate to a frozen shoulder um, and that can be a presenting feature and often patients have been seen by physiotherapists or orthopaedic specialists because of their frozen shoulder and only then when the tremor is noticed is the penny drop and the patient is referred but remember that seven out of ten patients have a rest tremor but three out of ten don't. Okay? Mm -hmm. So when going back to your question about approaching a treatment for this, treatment is more than just offering medication. So. Um, in part, it's, it's discussing the diagnosis with the patient. It's um, informing the patient of the condition, um, accessing um, further source of information like Parkinson's UK, um, access to physiotherapy to help them with their painful shoulder, and maybe aids around the home with an occupational therapist, thinking about um, um, chairs with the um, raised seat pads and make it easier to get in and out of the chair. Um, thinking about uh, the importance of keeping well, um, um, regular exercise as well as um, some stretching as well and maintaining good healthy lifestyle so balanced diet and thinking about one's weight and managing the other conditions and reviewing the medication see whether mm. that could be con contributing so treatment is not just prescription of mm -hmm. dopamine based therapy it's looking at the patient as a whole mm -hmm. I think we're better at doing that as neurologists than ever before okay excellent and um you mentioned there about screening for the non-motor symptoms as well in Parkinson's disease. Is there sort of a checklist that you go through in your mind or is this just something that you've, you've picked up over the, the years? Yes, yeah, so, so we could be with the patient for at least uh, 30 minutes just going through their non-motor symptoms. But um, I think there are important non-motor features, particularly when one thinks about what the diagnosis might be. For, is there evidence of cognitive decline? Is there evidence of hallucinations or delusions? Um, and you may not only pick that up from the patient, but their spouse or carer may also give you information. Um, do they have any other medical condition that may be contributing? And again, as I mentioned previously, looking, making certain that you have the drug history. If about once or twice a year, I find a patient who clearly has drug-induced Parkinsonism that's been missed by the referring doctor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so in a case where you, you do want to consider starting treatment, um, what is the discussion you'd have with the patient in that scenario and what are the options that you've got? Um, um, unfortunately, there are, there are sources of misinformation uh, which you can find particularly on the internet which suggests deferring medication for as long as possible. There's no evidence of, it, of that being an advantage. It's a dialogue with the patient suggesting that medication, if they are symptomatic, can reduce symptoms and maintain independence. Hmm. And that's what we're after, to maintain quality of life. And too often, I think... Um, in some patients there's a fear that they may develop tolerance to medication. Well, there's no evidence for that. Mm -hmm. um, loss of uh, um, effect may be due to this being a typical Parkinson's rather than a typical Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. And therefore one sh shouldn't be frightened by offering medication if it's going to help the quality of life of the patient. Mm -hmm. um, and what are, the, what are the sort of pharmacological options that you have? So, Essentially, in 2021, it's dopaminergic, as it has been probably for the last 30 or 40 years or more. 
Um, these are the dopaminergic therapies are the best therapies. After all, it's the it's the loss of dopamine that causes the characteristic rest tremor and poverty of movement. So if we can replace that, then the patient's more likely to start to f- feel towards normal once more. Okay. And um, what are the practical tips that you'd give patients with regards to Parkinson's disease? But certainly at the early stages, is there any, I mean, do patients ask if there's anything they can do to prevent the disease process getting worse? So again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, one takes a holistic approach. So in anyone with a chronic illness, the importance is of, is of um, maintaining a healthy diet, regular exercise if they can, um, and also uh, keeping up with social contacts, hobbies and interests. Um, uh, um, one of the questions might be employment. And again, that might, uh, that's, there's no easy answer to that. It's mm. up to the patient to decide whether they want to continue in their, um, in their work or whether contemplating retirement. And also the, uh, an issue in many patients is whether they have a pension, whether they have a critical illness policy which they could use. Um, um, I think you know, it's important for the patient to make the ultimate decision in all this, but they should do with best information. Okay. Um, of the dopaminergic medications you can prescribe, um, obviously there's levodopa or dopamine agonists would be very commonly used. Um, are there any commonly reported side effects that you think it's worth warning patients about? I think we had, if we had this conversation 20 years or so ago, then I th- probably would have been favouring dopamine agonists as a first-line therapy for particularly the younger patient to avoid the development of dyskinesia. I think many neurologists and geriatricians involved in Parkinson's disease have been aware of the problem of, of the side effects of dopamine agonists, not only nausea and uh, postural hypotension, but impulse behaviour problems and hypersomnolence. And therefore it's important to discuss these frankly with the patient, but openly, uh, and to share that information, and to be aware that if the patient should develop problems with impulsivity, that they should be discussing it with their, with their doctor. Yeah, okay. So it sounds like that, that kind of first consultation where you make the diagnosis, really making the diagnosis is just the first step really and it's then taking a step back and looking at the whole picture. And Absolutely right. These patients are probably going to be with you throughout your career, okay? And therefore it's important to set up a, a good dialogue with the patient and, and family members, friends or whatever and also introduce them to the nurse clinicians uh, mm. working with you and your team if you have them. Yeah. Um, also, if you have access to physiotherapy and occupational therapy, if, if it is required, to introduce that as well. Again, the intention is to keep the patient independent and well for as long as possible. We shouldn't forget about the mood effects. Not only, uh, not only um, um, the mood in terms of changes in mood as being told that you have a chronic illness, but because of the neurochemical changes in Parkinson's disease, and therefore depression can be quite common. Mm-hmm. Um, not only in the early stages, but of course later on the disease as well. So we should be alert to that. Mm-hmm. And and would you typically, um, if you're starting levodopa, like do you typically start at a, a lower dose and, and build that up gradually? Is that something that... So the vast majority of patients who are symptomatic, I would prescribe uh, levodopa-based therapy, cocaldopa or cobanaldopa. Um, starting with a small dose, taken with meals to reduce the risk of nausea, so three times a day, and increase the dose probably to a first stop of cocaldopa 25 slash 100 three times a day, taken at meal times or equivalent, mm. um, and then to review the patient thereafter and see how they're getting on. Um, this can be by the nurse clinician or yourself, yeah. or, or open a line of contact, they can write to you if necessary, yeah. and let you know if there's a problem. Um, 
So, and most patients will find that this dose is, is significant enough to derive some benefit. Yeah. Whether, whether, um, whether the tremor, for example, goes completely uh, is not always the case. But they should find certainly that their limb bradykinesia improves. Okay. But the problem is though is gait, gait and balance, which often is poorly responsive to dopamine replacement. Yeah. And therefore, if there is a, already you're, you're noticing change in gait and balance, then prompt referral to physiotherapy uh, is important. Okay. So that's quite, um, I guess, important with regards to managing patient expectations then. So if the tremor is the most disabling symptom for the patient uh, rather than the bradykinesia or rigidity, it may not be actually all that responsive to treatment. That might influence your... No. When you'd start no, Many patients tremor does respond, but there are, there's a minority who don't. And therefore, don't set yourself up for a fail, and just warn the patient that their tremor may not improve. Um, uh, there are other agents we can use. In the past, would you know we would offer anticholinergic, but they've gone very much out of fashion because mm -hmm. of the effects on, on memory function. Excellent. So, moving on to the the second patient in the clinic. So, um, it's, this gentleman is a seventy year old male. Um, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's five years earlier. Uh, having presented with slowness of gait and tremor. He was initially started on uh, levodopa and had an excellent response to his treatment. Following a recent review by his GP, his uh, dose of cocarol dopa was increased to 50 slash 200 three times a day. Despite this, he's noticed the medication isn't quite as effective as it once was. He, when he wakes in the morning, it takes him a little while before he feels normal in his own words, and he's also noticed that his symptoms return about an hour before his next dose is due. Um, are you able to describe what, what's happening here and uh, how, do you, how do you sort of combat this? And then another, again, classical case description of a typical patient attending um, any movement disorder or general neurology or, or movement disorder clinic in healthcare of the elderly, and the patient's developing motor fluctuations, and that is... Uh, the pattern in 40 to 50 percent of patients uh, four to five years into their illness. And uh, this is a, a consequence of a uh, reduced number of surviving dopamine uh, cells in the substantia nigra and therefore the patient becomes more dependent on the plasma level of the levodopa and as a consequence uh, what we're seeing is the patient responds but their ability in terms of the uh, duration of response uh, becomes less over time and this is what's called the motor fluctuations mm -hmm. and often accompanying this can be involuntary movements using of the career form type um, and it is a problem because patients will, may find that their life has become restrictive and that they, they although they're aware that medication works it, it, they're needing their next dose sooner mm -hmm. and as a consequence therefore they may not be able to do s certain things like go out at, and enjoy um, um, walks or other activities with friends or family because they're worried that medication is going to wear off. Um, so we can try and resolve this um, quite easily. One way, the simplest way is to fractionate the dose, so take the medication four or five times a day. And mm. If you or I ever tried doing that, it's actually very difficult to do so and to keep it on time, keep medication on time. One of the simplest ways is to add a um, a monoamine oxidase type B inhibitor, which are forms of selegilin, such as rosagilin, mm -hmm. um, which can extend the duration of action of the levodopa by up to 25%. Mm -hmm. okay? It also acts over 24 hours. It can in improve morning, it can provide some morning benefit as well, which is what you mentioned yeah. in, the, in the case report. Uh, another uh, option is a, a COMT inhibitor that also. Uh, can prolong duration of action of levodopa by 30 to 45 minutes per dose, such as enticapone or apicapone. 
Mm. And they can work well. Just be aware with enterocapone can cause diarrhea in about one in 12 patients. And, you, you know, warn the patient of this. It's a very nasty diarrhea that stops as soon as you stop the enterocapone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can use both. You can use enterocapone and resagilin, but I would use one at a time. Yeah, okay. During the same uh, clinic appointment, his wife mentions that they've had to start sleeping in separate bedrooms because frequently he'll move around in bed during the night and he's even injured her during his sleep. Um, uh, They they wondered if there's anything, uh, if that could be related to the Parkinson's disease. So so certainly, and it's one of the the problems of of, um, becoming older is many um, um, people um, have to move into separate rooms, have separate beds, partly because of insomnia, which is part of the aging process, particularly so, uh, a particular problem in Parkinson's patients with frequent um, arousals during the night when they wake up and having difficulty in maintaining sleep. And also because of a, um, a rapid eye movement sleep disorder, which can be one of the form first features of Parkinson's before the motor symptoms, in which patients act out their dreams. Normally, as you probably as you are aware, John, <laughs> our rapid eye movement disorder uh, is when we act out our dreams. Usually it's men kicking the goal at Wembley or currently as we speak, hopefully the goal against Denmark. Yeah. Uh, um, or, or women pushing themselves away from someone who's attacking them. And this can be quite violent. And you meet the most passive, uh, sweet person who behaves like um, in such a manner during the night and it's completely out of character. Hmm. But what's happening is they're activating their muscle tone during their dream sleep and, of course, acting out their dream. Hmm. Um, one clue can be um, to ask the patient is, have they fallen out of bed? Okay? Hmm. And that can be quite dramatic. And if you see injuries or bruises, it might be, it might be due to that. Hmm. And that can be easily overcome by, for example, trying clonazepam, 0.5 milligrams at night, or even starting with half a tablet, 0.25 milligrams of clonazepam at night. Okay. And um, what are the other sort of non-motor complications of Parkinson's disease that you might screen for, um, you know, in a, in a clinic appointment like this? Yes. So, again, in someone who's 70, we may be asking about cognitive function. And this is really very important. I think I spend most of my time, particularly in patients who've had the disease for, for more than a few years, talking about the cognitive effects of Parkinson's disease. And we know hallucinations and delusions are quite common in Parkinson's disease, as are other problems such as apathy and depression. So again, we need to ask about um, these things. Other aspects of Parkinson's which are non-motor is the autonomic nervous system disturbance, particularly constipation and bladder issues. So it's important to be up to speed in management of these things. If necessary, working with a a gastroenterologist, um, their GP as well, Mm -hmm. and and a urologist if necessary. Pain is a feature as well in up to a third to 40% of patients. And often it's dopamine responsive, but asking about pain is important because many patients may not necessarily volunteer it. Um, what, what does the pain tend to, is it sort of a musculoskeletal pain or is it neuropathic pain? Or? It, it can be all of these things. It can be a somatic pain, you know, a visceral pain. Sometimes it can be like a nerve root pain, but it particularly fluctuates during the daytime and yet responds quite well to dopaminergic medication and usually occurs at the time when medication wears off. And the patient often saying that they've tried various analgesics and it's not worked. And mood cannot similarly fluctuate with this. Mm. We sometimes see patients who've had fluctuation for some years who become very depressed during their off state and then in, when their medication kicks in, their mood picks up again. So again, be alert to that as well. Mm. Okay, and so that, that's kind of a mood disturbance, not purely sort of uh, reflecting the motor problems, that's a kind of a 
uh, sort of psychiatric problem in its own right. Is That's there? right. And again, best responds best to dopaminergic medication. Okay. And the key in all this is to think about trying to maintain steady state dopamine levels through the brain. Mm -hmm. That's what happens in the normal brain. And yet we have this artificial way of delivering medication with oral capsules and tablets, where there's a pulse effect and then the medication wears off and you give another pulse, like a sine wave response in terms of levodopa levels. Mm -hmm. And so such fluctuations therefore are what you expect. Okay. Well that brings us uh, nicely on to the, the next case, which is um, another patient you're seeing in clinic who's a 70 year old female. So she was diagnosed with Parkinson's eight years, uh, Parkinson's disease eight years ago, and she's currently on um, cocal dopa 50 slash 200 four times a day, and tacopone 200 milligrams four times a day, so with, with the cocal dopa. And she's also on half Cinemet CR at night uh, to try and control her symptoms. She describes some wearing off of her medications about an hour before the next dose is due, but about 45 minutes after taking each dose, she starts to develop excessive movements, which make it difficult for her to perform household tasks, and on a few occasions have led to falls. She also describes occasional freezing of her gait when the next dose is due, but doesn't get this symptom when she's, quotes, on. Um, so this sounds, uh, I mean, this lady has had Parkinson's disease for a few more years than the previous gentleman, and her symptoms do sound a little bit more complex here. And what, what do you think might be going on here? So although it's initially, your initial thoughts might be, is this beginning of dose involuntary movements, you'd want to ask whether the involuntary movements persist then during the on phase. Mm. And um, do the involuntary movements occur at any particular time? Um, involuntary movements tend to be worse as the day goes on when levodopa levels are, are, are much less predictable mm. because of the buffering effects of food, variable absorption due to exercise and other factors we still don't understand, as well as variable um, um, bowel activity. And, and there's one clue which can be that if involuntary movements particularly involves the lower limbs, it tends to be more due to low or intermediate dopamine levels rather than peak dose, which tends to be face, trunk and arm. Okay? Hmm. So we can inquire about that. Hmm. Um, some patients may have involuntary movements in your clinic because of the stress and anxiety of attending. Um, and typically if you ask the patient what they're like at home, often they say the involuntary movements are less. Hmm. As a rule, patients tend to under-report their involuntary movements. And if, and if you are uh, aware of them, discussing it with the patient is actually a careful um, dialogue and not to provoke alarm. Mm. Most patients prefer to have involuntary movements than off immobility. Mm. So what might be going on here? I suspect she might be getting peak dose involuntary movements. She takes a, a fair amount of, co of levodopa, yeah. with 200 milligrams of levodopa per, per tablet. Um, one thing you might want to do is, as we talked about in the past, is fractionate the levodopa. Um, so you could offer the equivalent of one and a half of the cocal dopa 25 slash 100 rather than two tablets. Okay? Or there's a combination tablet with enticapone you can try with the 175 milligrams or 150 milligrams hmm. of levodopa to try that. Okay. And along with it, you can add uh, rosagelin to it to again make the levodopa last longer. Okay? Mm -hmm. There may be scope to adding a dopamine agonist here to smooth out yeah. the fluctuations. And the long-acting dopamine agonist for a penerol slow release, pamipexol slow release, and the reticotin patch might be quite useful here. Okay. And um, obviously when you're seeing a patient in clinic, it's just a snapshot of, of how that patient is. Are there any sort of uh, methods you can use to try and get a, a better picture of overall motor function? Um, so in the past we'd use an on-off diary, but they're quite difficult to use. You'd have to uh, spend some time teaching the patient to, uh, to fill in an, an hourly diary. 
if you have access to the Parkinson's kinetogram, that is an eye in the sky really, which is extremely useful and gives a more objective idea of what's happening with the patient. Okay, mm. Just be careful though of the patient whose uh, PKG report comes, looks like um, the patient is not moving. It may be because they're resting, okay, or they've been so ill that um, they've not been moving. Um, so be aware of that. So the PKG, this is a, this is like a sort of a, a watch, where it lo looks like a watch, right, that the patient would wear, and uh, it's able to distinguish between dyskinesia um, versus uh, sort of tremor or bradykinesia. Is that is that right? It's an ambulatory monitoring device, similar to your your, your, your health data on your app, on your iPhone, to similar to, to your Fitbit, and what it does is is, rec is um, record velocity of movement, okay? okay, and also tremor frequency, and uh, it's it's very valuable and um, I think quite reliable, mm -hmm. and it usually reflects the patient's history, and usually you usually find your conclusions are are affirmed by the uh, by the uh, ambulatory monitoring mm. device. There are, there are hopefully going to be an increasing number of these things, so to bring the price down, and we therefore have access to them. And patients find them extremely useful, as we do. And um, the patient comes to clinic with their um, with their husband, who's been doing some research online, and he mentions that he's read about uh, some sort of further treatments for Parkinson's disease, that in particular deep brain stimulation. Are you able to? Talk about when you would consider advanced treatments for Parkinson's disease and what are the options available? Yes, and, and often this dialogue should be sooner rather than later because um, studies such as um, a study from New England Journal looking at early uh, um, deep brain stimulation suggests that patients may benefit from, from it sooner rather than later. And often the dialogue when you've tried an advanced therapy, be it duodopa, apomorphine or deep brain stimulation, ask the patient when they think they would have benefited from it if in retrospect, and often they say at least one or two years before. Mm. So again, it's part of the dialogue um, and um, to think about what the options are. And when I see a patient in clinic, I'm thinking ahead mm. in terms of what I may be suggesting therapies in the future, and I might make a note of it um, mm. um, um, and uh, so that I'm aware of what I was thinking when I next see the patient. Mm. So we have these advanced therapies and should they be called advanced therapies? Well, they're therapies for advancing disease, um, but can maintain independence. And some patients' lives have been truly revolutionized with advanced therapies, with either apomorphine, deep brain stimulation, duodopa, and the quality of their life, and not, uh, not only the patient, but the carer's life can be transformed from it. So mm. we need to think about carer burden as well. Too often in the past, carers often became ill or died before the patient because of the care burden. Mm. So we, you know, the, the patient and their family is, is, is to be considered as a whole. Mm. And um, weighing up between apomorphine, duodopa or deep brain stimulation, what, what are the, the factors that you, that you consider there or is it just about giving the options to the patient? So you're thinking in offering these therapies, will the patient benefit from continuous dopaminergic stimulation? Um, are the most um, striking symptoms um, related to changes in dopamine levels? If the patient sadly has a frank dementia, then the advanced therapy is not going to really make a significant change to the quality of life. Mm. If the patient's problems are predominantly of gait and balance with severe gait freezing and falling, then again the advanced therapies are not going to do this. If mm. the patient has significant speech problems, then deep brain stimulation is, is probably not a good idea. Mm. Um, some patients do not like the idea of, of an infusion device, particularly one that involves insertion of a tube into the stomach. For mm. duodopa, um, um, 
some patients um, fear the word apomorphine since they think it's go they're going to have morphine. So you have to carefully explain that's a dopaminergic agent and mm. not an opiate and not a controlled drug. Yeah. So a dialogue is really important and giving some information with that um, discussion is really important for the patient to read about and discuss with their friends and family and their GP okay. before making any final decision. So it's something you would start to think about perhaps before it became a necessity and then um, review each time you're, you're seeing the patient? I think so. I think that, you know, it's important that the patient feels that there is more therapy. Um, a number of occasions I've met patients who are fearful that this is the end of the road in terms of therapy and hence one reason why they didn't want to take therapy in the beginning because they feared they may not have it in the future yeah. but there's lots of therapy um, that we don't have a cure throughout the uh, course of the disease. Okay and um, the final case that uh, we're going to discuss today um, is uh, an 80 year old female who comes is brought into clinic by her carer she's had a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease for over 15 years and she attends uh, with the carer who's increasingly worried about the patient's mental health so over the last six months there's been a decline in memory and the family are reporting that she's frequently very confused and muddled on several occasions she's told them she's seen uh, small animals crawling around the flat there are days where she's more lucid but overall the family are concerned that she can't be left alone for any significant length of time. Alongside this, the family get the feeling that her Parkinson's disease treatment has become less effective. She's on uh, pretty good doses of medication, so she's on Cocaldopa 50 slash 200 five times a day, Rapinarol 4 milligrams once a day, and Clonazepam 0.5 micrograms at night, sorry 0.5 milligrams at night, but she seems slower and struggles with her walking. And the family really wants to know whether the doses could be increased of her medications. So, well, I guess, first of all, do you think that's a simple yes or, or, or are you more concerned? I think it involves a discussion about what is happening here. Yeah. And clearly the cognitive problems are, are dominating. And it's not surprising considering the patient's um, length of history of the condition and their age. Because we know we see neuronal loss usually um, as the condition becomes more uh, advanced. And you and I know that when we look at imaging, and MR and CT, on the time of initial diagnosis, imaging looks normal. Um, but the neuronal loss is usually a, a sign of uh, advancing disease associated with a triad of symptoms, which are hallucinations, cognitive decline, and gait freezing and falling. Mm. And then we know that uh, quality of life can deteriorate during that time because of particularly those three features. And the cognitive issues can very much uh, be a major stress not only to the patient but the family and their carers hmm. and often re this requires intervention of social services and as well as occupational therapists as well to assist the patient hmm. so again I think just increasing the medication is not going to work here because the most striking features of the cognitive problems will only be exacerbated by so doing hmm. so it, this involves a different kind of dialogue therefore with the patient yeah but I was reminded um, by a, a colleague of mine who mentioned that the patient reported seeing a mouse in the clinic. In fact, there was a mouse in the clinic. <laughs> this was last week. So just, just, just check first of so, all. So, so when this patient's saying they're seeing um, things, actually they are true, and it's not they they haven't got an infestation. But, but seriously, um, um, often what seems to be a, a, re a minor uh, a hallucination can then become quite terrifying. Mm. The innocent mouse crawling across the floor then becomes a rat which tries to bite the patient, or they feel it running over their skin, which is extremely frightening. So we must, we must take these things seriously and respond appropriately. And this often involves um, interaction with our colleagues in community mental health hmm. um, and use of um, 
medication to help the cognitive decline hmm. um, with anticholinesterases, if necessary, quetiapine for hallucinations. Of course, we do some background um, medical checks, check a few blood tests, check the urine, make sure they're not severely constipated, again, review their drug history um, as part of um, um, uh, the initial assessment. Um, um, hmm. A cognitive assessment is really important and also to uh, give an, an, indica an indication, but be aware that mini mental state is not the best, particularly for a, a patient who uh, was more than able in life, hmm. and that can be a poor discriminator. Uh, so using the Addenbrooks or similar might be better, and if necessary, referring the patient for neuropsychometry if available. So from a from a practical perspective, the the balance of motor control of symptoms uh, versus uh, sort of cognitive function. So there can be you know direct consequences if if perhaps the, someone wants to increase the dopaminergic medication. So do you find yourself sometimes in these cases actually having to withdraw treatment rather than? From my experience, the family and the carers of the patients want someone who's alert and with them and aren't, too, aren't as much concerned about the motor problems as they are with a, a loved one who's frankly deluded, hallucinating, paranoid and distressed. Hmm. So I think concentrating on the mental and cognitive problems as a priority is, is really uh, something to think about. Hmm. Of course, we mustn't um, ignore the motor symptoms, but there's nothing worse than a, a patient with severe dyskinesia who's severely confused and hallucinating, running around the home. This is very distressing for all yeah. concerned. So we, we, we must think about the cognitive uh, problems mm. probably as a priority. Yeah. Uh, this may necessitate reducing their dopaminergic medication, of course not to render them immobile, but to think what the targets should be in terms of realistic yeah. mobility control. And, and which of the medications would you sort of uh, look to target first? Is it, is it levodopa and dopamine agonists are sort of equally potent with that regard or are you more well, concerned? tend to be the, the last drug um, that's prescribed, the first drug out. But there are particularly classes of drugs that one tends to want to uh, reduce first. For example, the anticholinergics, dopamine agonists, um, um, the monoamine yeah. um, oxidase inhibitors, forms of selegilin, and then the patient probably just taking forms of levodopa. Yeah. Um, um, and then using the other agents, as I mentioned, the anticholinesterases, such as ribostigmine and quetiapine if required. Yeah. Is that something that is used only if the visual hallucinations are, are troubling for the patient, or you wouldn't start that just because there are hallucinations? No, again, it's a dialogue with the patient, and it's something to... Um, it's not a knee-jerk reaction, and it's also maybe for other forms of delusions as, as well, hmm. uh, um, uh, or lack of insight, but often usually because it's distressing. It's the distress element that mm -hmm. I think is important here. And again, a dialogue with the patient suggesting what you might be able to offer. Um, and sh so the patient is aware that should that little mouse then start to bite, there is something we can do about it and alert us to it. Mm -hmm. okay? um, I think one of the days when we tranquilized our patients out of hallucinations, it mm. often didn't work, rendered the patient in a, in, um, a drowsy state and often exacerbated their motor problems. So we, again, it's, it's working with the patient in terms of for best outcomes. Yes. Something I was hoping to clarify with you is uh, the distinction between what we would call Parkinson's disease, dementia, and uh, dementia with Lewy bodies. Do you, do you think this is a clinically useful distinction or is this something that um, in reality is a bit of a sort of continuum? I'm pleased you asked me about this because it actually is quite important. 
when you first see the patient, actually getting a timeline of symptoms is helpful. If the patient has developed uh, Parkinsonism with bradykinesia, but at the same time is showing signs of cognitive disturbance, and also may have had hallucinations um, in the uh, recent uh, history, then it's likely they may have diffuse Lewy body disease. Mm. And the clinical course will be quite different from that with idiopathic Parkinson's disease, where hallucinations and cognitive decline tend to be a later feature. And therefore, the management of your patient who you think may have diffuse Lewy body disease may be more conservative in terms of dopaminergic medication, mm-hmm. with, the, with the concern that it may exacerbate delusions and also the cognitive decline may become more noticeable. So I think you know one needs to be aware of, of, of mental state um, at the time of first consultation. And mm-hmm. again, gaining history from a spouse, carer, family member, whoever, is so important in this. Mm-hmm. Um, imaging is not going to help you in this situation. Um, it will help to make certain the patient hasn't got coincidence cerebrovascular disease or picked up a subdural in the way. Uh, you know, I've had the occasional patient who the cognitive decline has clearly not been from a neurodegenerative condition, but from a subdural, for example, or a stroke. Mm. But in the majority, I think it's important to bear that in mind. Is what I'm seeing idiopathic Parkinson's? What else could it be? We haven't touched upon the atypical Parkinsonisms, maybe, which is could mm. be for another podcast. But uh, I think be aware of the diagnosis and reflect on it whenever you see the patient. Yeah. So, um, so thanks very much. That's the, the final patient singing clinic. So quite a light clinic today, I suspect, compared to what you're used to, just four patients. But, um, but uh, always enjoyable, John. Yes. <laughs> and I think we have a lot to give. And be, uh, again, the important take-home message is that uh, think of, as, as, we are, as clinicians are doing increasingly, think of the patient as a whole, okay? Mm-hmm. Think of not only their motor, but their non-motor symptoms, okay? Use questionnaires to help you. I think that's important. Try not to bombard the patient with too many questions. How's your bladder? How's your bowels? How's your sleeping? Because the patient often feels rattled. Think about asking the patient to prioritize their their questions, okay, prior to the clinic. So, for example, I might say, before your next clinic appointment, think about the things you'd like to talk about in particular that we might have forgotten. Mm. Or write to me for something that we have forgotten. Please look at the Parkinson's UK website for information. Yeah. Um, It's a valuable resource. Excellent. Well, thanks for your time today. That's been really, really useful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.